Well, I want to start with something very strange uh, that happened in Malmö in Sweden at the end of last month. In fact, it was so remarkable that it was reported on BBC Radio 3. I know because I was in the studio when it happened. But here's, uh, here's what went down. Mahler's Fifth Symphony has been hailed as a transforming experience and a composer's love letter to his new bride. Sadly, the harmony at a recent performance in Sweden didn't extend to everyone in the audience. Some concert-goers came to blows in a row over rustling sweet papers. It's meant new rules of etiquette have now been introduced by the concert hall in Malmö. In the city, the 100 share index closed. <laughs> So that did, there isn't a connection between the downward slide of shares and what happened in Malmo, at least not as far as I'm aware. Now, the, the music that was being played when that happened, it was the Leipzig Gewandhaus Orchestra and Andres Nelson's, this piece, the Adagetto slow movement from Mahler's Fifth Symphony, a love song to Alma, his young wife. It's one of the most fragile bits of music in, in the whole symphony. And perhaps it's no surprise that, in fact, I can give a bit more detail than Neil Slate gave you, which is that uh, a young man uh, was so incensed that a woman was reaching to open some chewing gum that he ripped the packet away from her, threw it on the floor. And then after the finale, this is all documented in the Swedish press, after the finale, the loud final movement of the Fifth Symphony, uh, she uh, turned to him and hit him. Uh, cue uh, rival gangs getting involved and a, you know, a, a small-scale riot breaking out in Malmö over this piece. Now, this is an admittedly humorous story of what goes wrong when classical music etiquette is uh, imperiled. However, it's a fairly astonishing thing when you think about it. That hall, and as you can see, there's Malmö's concert hall. It's in the usual sort of conference hall style of so many uh, contemporary uh, concert halls from uh, Glasgow to Tokyo to all over the world. Now, these places are extraordinary acoustically and architecturally because they mean not only are we focused on the music that's happening on stage, we're also, it's possible that something as small as somebody opening a packet of chewing gum can scar acoustically the experience, the transcendent experience of, of listeners in the hall. It seems there are limits about how far we want to truly be together in these concert halls. That young man was so offended by what was going on that he felt he had to resort to violence. I think the serious point here is to do with what's happened to get us to this point. What happened in the story of listening that means this is how we're supposed to listen to classical music? Well, uh, uh, one, sorry, one of the uh, things that's happened is the development of concert etiquette. And as you'll see from these amusing or not so amusing slides, you are charged with five counts of serial clapping between movements. Uh, concert etiquette there on the, it's rather doer on the right-hand side. I'll show you another one. On the left-hand side, you can see there's a, a family concert uh, from America and a flow chart about when you should and shouldn't applaud, as you can see. Largely, it basically boils down to, is everyone else applauding? No, don't start it. Uh, the, 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 the thing about this is the way that we all, as a classical music audience, are reduced uh, to a, a binary range of responses about how we're allowed to respond to the music we're hearing. We have only two options. One is to be quiet, and the other is to applaud only in the right place. The, the thing is, it's not, this is not a cultural phenomenon that I think we should be very proud of because it's an anachronism for the vast majority of music that's played in concert halls. Everything from the 17th century, even before then, to music in the early 20th century and, and written right now does not, is not written for that range of responses, for us to sit there like stuffed pigs.
Not my phrase, the words of Sir Edward Elgar after the audience responded to his second symphony with less than cordial uh, enthusiasm. Um, but all of the music that was written from, from all the music I'm going to share with you today from the 17th century, Jean-Baptiste Lully, all the way to uh, Beethoven, thinking particularly 17th, 18th, 19th century today. Because that's a time when we as an audience were participants. When we listened, we were participating in the musical work. We weren't sit simply sitting there and taking the music. And in fact, I would go further. I would say that uh, in not allowing us to respond in the way that we are supposed to, what's happened to classical music culture and what's happened to uh, the, the design of concert halls, we become a sort of self-loading musical freight that puts us in the seats night after night. We go in, the music's done to us, and we leave. We're not part of the performance in a way that a composer like Mozart, a composer like Beethoven, a composer like Haydn would understand. And this is unique across culture. Indeed, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's I, I come back to this. We take it for granted, but it's a decidedly strange phenomenon. Even in the cinema, somebody eats popcorn. All right, it's annoying, but you know, you kind of live with it. The theater too, even in church services, a child runs down the aisle. What's the problem? We live and let live in every other place apart from the classical music concert hall. So what are the range of responses that we could have anticipated and what, and what composers wanted us to have? Just another example of this. It's as if, you know, you go to your favourite uh, Ed Sheeran gig or Stormzy gig or whoever your favourite pop artist or jazz artist might be. You applaud when they solo. You applaud when you hear your favourite song. You applaud when during the set. If you were to wait in a pop gig or, a, or Ronnie Scott's until the end of the evening to applaud, they would think, what are you doing? Are you not having a a good time. There'd be no way of understanding. This is exactly what Mozart and Haydn and Beethoven expected from us as listeners too. Our listening was supposed to be noisy, and it will be today, ladies and gentlemen, because this, these are some of the things I want you to do today, whether you're online or whether you're here in the Museum of London. Now, shh doesn't mean, uh, you know, be quiet in the rustling gum sort of way. It means, shh, we want to hear what's happening on stage. You will with the quartet and with the music I'm playing you. Applause, clearly, that's an option. Tears, Entirely legitimate, public displays of emotion are welcome this evening. Um, gasping at the sheer uh, awesomeness of what you're hearing, of course, that's a, again another legitimate response. Hubbub, you can talk to one another about what you're hearing. You may very well disagree with what I'm saying now. Well, tell each other about it and get involved in that conversation. And of course, you can boo as well. Silence is possible, but it's absolutely not demanded by any of the composers whose names I've mentioned. It's not part, it's not, it's not um, uh, an irreducible part of the listening cultures of all of the, the vast majority of the music we call classical. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story. And so to tell it, we're going to start with the Paris Opera, but I'm just going to give you this little quote from... Stendhal, who's uh, Rossini's biographer. This is from a, an in-life biography of Rossini in 1824 in Paris. Isn't it good? What will result, he says, from what he detected then is a growing trend of this scrupulous silence and continuous attention that fewer people will enjoy themselves. I, if, if, honestly, if Stendhal, any of those audiences could come to a, any classical music concert as it currently works around the world, they'd be appalled. They would think, is anybody having a good time? That's what the music is supposed to do, and that's what we're supposed to be doing as listeners. So, we're going to be participants today, and we are going to recreate, for the first time in my knowledge anyway, the listening performance of Mozart's Paris Symphony in July 1778. That's going to require an awful lot from you, a lot of noise-making. Uh, we'll get on to that. So, meanwhile, cultures of participation of listening, where they're documented and where I can tell you what happened. Paris Opera, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and uh, Vienna, the string quartets in Beethoven's time, the early 19th century, thanks to the, thanks to the Achea Quartet. 
So, uh, this is the Paris Opera as it was in 1679. And I'm indebted for much of this, uh, these uh, in infotainments about uh, the Paris Opera at this time from James Johnson's magisterially brilliant book, Listening in Paris, a book I'd recommend you all read. Anyway, those of you familiar with Paris, this is near the Tuileries, this is the, uh, the Palais Royal, and the, the bit in purple there is where the opera was. Uh, and this uh, man, Jean-Baptiste Lully, uh, was really the most, probably the greatest composer of music that wasn't designed to be listened to. Uh, he was, um, he was uh, superintendent of French musical life um, in Louis XIV in the Sun King's reign. So that meant from 1673 to 1687 at the opera, he had, uh, he had the exclusive rights to put on his tragédie lyrique, this new form of, of French opera, entirely thanks to him. That's a little uh, fragment of the score of Armide. Uh, and here is a picture of the performance of Armide as it was at the opera in 1761. Interesting, isn't it, how long uh, Lully's music remained in the repertoire of an opera. We often like to say that it was all about new music in the, in the 18th century. Not entirely true. That piece has been in the repertoire since before Lully's death in 1687, all the way up to 1761. It's the same theatre. Uh, we'll come on to the, what you're looking at in just a little bit, but I, I, um, what do I mean, this quip about Lully writing music that wasn't supposed to be listened to. Well, in a way, the circumstances of his death uh, rather proved the point, um, because in 1687, uh, he composed a te deum uh, to celebrate King Louis XIV's recovery from surgery. And to do so, Lully was not just composing, he was conducting as well. And conducting, for him, and at that time, meant using a five or six foot pole and banging it into the floor to beat time. <coughs> so. The, the effect of that, you seem not to be astonished by that. I'm astonished by it. The, the, when you bang a pole into the floor, you are making a noise. You know, you are making a percussion track. It's like, it's like having a click track in film or pop, the pop world, but written, written into, in the performance, in every performance. Uh, what happened at this performance of the Te Deum is that Lully um, hit his big toe. Uh, he developed gangrene. He ironically refused surgery because he wanted to keep dancing, and he died uh, from his injury. Uh, when you hear the piece, you'll perhaps understand why he had to hit the floor so loudly. Here we go. This is the opening symphonia from uh, Lully's Te Deum. the idea uh, just as but the thing is if conducting was noisy then and silent now mark wigglesworth has just published a, a brilliant book called the silent musician about what he does as a as a conductor ex-music director of english national opera quiet carving in the air not so for lully and in fact they did realize in the 17th century that there was a you know a kind of health and safety issue going on so uh, in the future they stopped using poles but they continued to whack uh, sticks into music stands so this still produced a terrible racket as the philosopher and sometime composer jean-jacques rousseau said 
let's just go into the, the, the particularities of what we're looking at here in, in, the, in the Paris Opera. I think this is a fascinating picture. Because as you can see, in the parterre, which is the stalls, it's only men were allowed down there. And as you can see at the, at the side, just above where it says Luli, uh, and, and towards the other side, uh, there, there are soldiers with loaded muskets. And in fact, there were 40 soldiers employed at every performance of the opera to keep the order due a royal house. Uh, but as you go further up the, uh, the, 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 the tiers of boxes, the most prestigious box, uh, series of boxes of all were, the, were on the first tier. And it wasn't at the back in what's sometimes now the royal box in, in European opera houses, but it was the ones near the stage. And in fact, if you can see, actually on the stage, there are six boxes. That, that you, you see where the dancers and the, and the singers are. Well, if you look up, there are, there are people literally watching on the stage. This is an appalling place to see anything at all, apart from each other, which was a crucial part of what was happening at the Paris Opera. This was a spectacle in which we, the audience, were participating spectators, especially if you were uh, an aristocrat. Uh, James Johnson has a, a description of what happens the further up we go, because the further up we go, the parterre is, you know, military and boisterous blokes, you know, shouting and having a look at which Duchess is doing, you know what I mean, in, in the loggias. But as we go further up, James Johnson puts this brilliant. He said, worldly abbés chatted happily with ladies and jewels on the second level, occasionally earning indecent shouts from the parterre when their conversation turned to cordial. And lovers sought the dim heights of the third balcony, the paradise, le paradis, away from the pro probing lorgnettes. Um, the paradise, however, is, is something of a misnomer. Um, the, the, up, up there, you could just about see each, see each other. Uh, the, the lighting the, would sometimes illuminate what was going on on stage. More often, it emitted kind of a lot of smoke, so all you could really see was, again, who was sitting opposite you. But in the, up, up there in the paradise, not much lighting, wooden benches, not very comfortable place for an, an amorous clinch, not least because of the latrines, which were up there as well. And as James Johnson reports, they were just, these are just sort of wooden tubs. So when the smell got too bad, of course, everyone would evacuate the the theatre. So the paradise is something of a misnomer. Um, it, it's clear, though, uh, the, oh, this is a, a poem from this collection, the Chansonnier, <coughs> excuse me, Chansonnier Clairambeau, with some wonderful things in it, uh, like halfway through there. Then I climbed to the second row lo loges straight away and found blondes and brunettes in a happy abbey. At last, tired of strolling, I returned to the floor and found 200 officers speaking of war. Now, all of this meant that the culture of, of spectacle, of multimedia, dance, theatre and explosion uh, was something in which listening, as we now understand it, and in which I must say you're doing very dutifully, or seem to be uh, today, um, was really the last thing on anyone's mind, and it was the last thing that one should do. Um, oh, here's a little, uh, this is La Petite Loge, uh, typical of the sorts of assignations you would set up. The crucial thing about the opera is that you wouldn't arrive on time. It was, it, it, nobody arrived at the opera on time. No person of rank arrived at 5.15 when the opera started. Instead, you'd wander and you'd set up your social and sexual shenanigans of the evening. Who knows? Um, so here's, a, here's some testimony from the time, from newspapers and, and plays and uh, assorted places on how listening actually worked. Look, if you did listen, you weren't part of our society, but instead you were in the company of several clerics, schoolboys, and sucklings of the muses, and soldiers just returning from or about to leave for a tour of duty. There's nothing so damnable as listening to a work like a street merchant or some provincial just off the boat. 
Um, and uh, I love the, the quote from uh, La Morlier's uh, novel, Angola. We listen at most to two or three pieces consecrated by fashion, and at the end, we excessively praise or thoroughly damn the whole work. And there's nothing so indecent as staying to the end. So all of this presents, you'd have thought, uh, something of a conundrum for composers, because there were moments when music was listened to in, in the Paris Opera, and this piece uh, was one of them. Um, it's for about, it lasts about a minute and a half, um, and it sounds like this. It's a, the Tempest interlude from Mahamare's opera, uh, Alcyon, as you can hear. And it was performed quite frequently, from, written in 1706, back in 1719, and it stayed in the repertory. And when the strings get going, you hear why this music made us jump out of our seats, at least for about 90 seconds or so. tempted to applaud yet, I promise, your moment is coming. But you can see how uh, th that music is, is very impressive. Uh, however, I would argue that the way, the reason that everyone stopped up looking from the boxes, oh, just one other, one other word that's really good on the, on, fascinating on the architecture of that theatre, the way that the boxes were constructed, the partitions went floor to ceiling right to the front. So if you, if you imagine, those of you who've been to you know, any conventional theatres, it's hard enough you have to reach around if you're in the back row of the boxes to see the stage. There it was impossible. I mean, the only way you could do that was literally if you're in your front row and you leant out. The, 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 they were positioned, actually, to look at the boxes opposite you. They weren't even positioned to look at the stage. Sorry. Um, so it just shows you... Anyway, this, this, this music could, I think, have broken through all of this, at least, at least temporarily. But I would argue that its effect here, it's not being listened to really as music. Music. Um, that's because in the aesthetics of the time, what was impressive about the music and the spectacle at the Paris Opera was how far it imitated nature. So here is the, the apparatus of the early 18th century orchestra being used to depict nature as much as that was possible. So you would be uh, briefly uh, amazed at what you were hearing, impressed, stunned. It would be kind of as impressive as, as that backdrop. You know, there's the, there's the ship being sunk by the, by the tempest. It, it, it belonged to the same kind of multimedia place of, 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 the, of that kind of impression. That's what you wanted. You wanted the show when you went to the opera. It's not that the music moved you emotionally, it's that it impressed you. What's amazing in the story of listening in Paris is how that changes in a few uh, short decades. Uh, so that by the 1770s, uh, trage musical tragedies are being listened to all the way through for the first time. Now, James Johnson charts this story uh, magnificently in his book, and it's a, a combination of uh, a, a loosening of the fetters of aristocratic society in which we as an audience weren't happy anymore just to wait for an aristocrat to tell us what to think. We kind of wanted our own uh, emotions, but we also heard them reflected to us 
uh, back to us in the music of this composer, Christoph Willibald von Gluck. And what happened when Gluck arrived is, is remarkable, the 1770s in Paris. Again, some contemporary testimony. Having thought that the opera was a place where I would be constantly indifferent and never moved, then Gluck came, and now I know the charms of music. I have at last, at last felt myself shedding tears this is one of your jobs this afternoon, as I never have before in this place of enchantment. Here's another. One sees for the first time a musical tragedy heard with sustained attention from start to finish. So the inconceivable in 1750 that people might actually listen to music <laughs> was, or, or even an opera, I, I'm not making a distinction, they're both... Music is important in opera too. Of course, the, the, the point is, here are people giving attention to what's happening on stage for the duration of an evening's entertainment. Now, it's, it's this combination between the repertoire and their own changing ideas about how they owned their own emotions at that time. But Gluck's music is all about restraint and simplicity and directness. So the show is no longer about a vast multimedia spectacle of backdrops and imitating nature, although he, you know, he's pretty good at that when he wants to be. But it's far more about uh, an ideal of a neoclassical restraint and something around uh, melody and directness of, uh, as I say, directness of experience, directness of, uh, of, uh, of, of the way he's telling the emotions, the internal emotions of the characters and giving them to us in the audience. Um, this piece, uh, makes the point clearly. Um, this is March. Uh, sorry, this is the March of the Priests from Act One of Gluck's Alceste in 1776. And as this is happening, I'll, I'll read you one document of how this was how this was heard. I took care to close myself up within my box. I listened to this new work with profound attention. Soon they came to the beautiful march of the priests of Apollo in the first act. And from the first measures, I was seized by such a strong feeling of awe and felt within me so intensely that religious impulse that penetrates those who attend ceremonies of a revered and august religion. That without even knowing it, I fell to my knees in my box and stayed in this position, suppliant with my hands clasped until the end of the piece. Now, beautiful as that is, I don't see any of you breaking out in spontaneous genuflection in the audience. Perhaps you are uh, uh, watching on social media, I don't know. But um, it would surprise me because th that music seems rather plain to me, in a positive sense. But it, it doesn't seem, by our standards perhaps, capable of inducing awe or that religious feeling. So clearly what we're dealing with here is a, is a change of taste at this precise moment in French society where this music can have that effect. And it, it, what, what Pauline de R, she's... Uh, uh, she's uh, one of the in the correspondence des amateurs musiciens at the time is really attesting to is she feels suddenly this this power that forces her you know her, she's not really in control of her of her of her body of her feelings anymore this music 
makes her genuflect and feel religious impulses. Um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, said a similar thing to Gluck. I've just left a rehearsal of your opera, Evigenie en Olide, and I'm enchanted. You've accomplished what I believed until now was impossible. And after hearing Orphée Eurydice, he says, j'ai perdu mon, mon Eurydice. So uh, Rousseau himself, having not thought that French opera was, was, would ever amount to anything, is suddenly hearing music in the Paris Opera of Gluck, and it's, it's, it's changing his life. It's affecting him emotionally in a way that he didn't think was possible. Now, Gluck's music opens an important window into another kind of possibility for musical expression in Paris. Uh, it, it's about, if, if we're allowed for the first time in Paris to feel that music itself, or music, at least when it's allied to a Gluckian story or tragedy, might move you, that opens the door to the possibility that instrumental music might do the same. But instrumental music occupies a, a strange position in all over European culture at this time because nobody really knows what it means. Um, there's a, a, a Fontenelle, the French writer, who says, Sonata comme vous tu, he said, mean, meaning, Sonata, what do you want of me? Nobody knows what these pieces, something called a sonata, a symphony, a concerto, they're not telling a story, they're not obviously imitating nature, what on earth is it all about? In fact, it was kind of worse than that for composers of instrumental music, because a correspondent to the, to the Mercure summed it up by saying, what happens when composers rely upon harmony, i.e. write instrumental music? Well, the most beautiful scenes are disfigured, tenderness is stifled and all interest is lost, the ear only is satisfied, or rather deadened, while the heart and the mind are left with nothing. And it was into this environment for instrumental music uh, that the young Mozart first came to Paris in 1764. Um, before we get to your great moment in the sun, I know I keep promising this, it is coming soon, and soon, but I'm going to set the scene for, for Mozart's Paris journey in 1778 with his mother at the age of 22. She dies on the trip, it all goes horribly wrong, apart from this symphony, which we'll hear. But he made two previous visits, one in 1764 and one in 1766. On his first visit, the tiny Mozart, the age of eight, and he was very small, you know, uh, physiologically too, had his first music published. Uh, and it was this piece, it's his Opus One, it's a sonata for piano with violin obligato, Mozart's Opus One. We now think of it as K6, but who's counting? <laughs> On his next visit, um, sorry, the, the reason for that picture is it's the nearest we have to a 1778 portrait of Mozart, so there he is at the age of 21. Two years later, he's again paraded by Leopold Mozart, his father, to impress the aristocrats, and you know, Leopold is touting him around European courts. He spent a long time in London as well. Um, and as befits the event, uh, there's a painting of teeny Mozart um, impressing the aristocrats with impossible feats of prestidigitation. Um, so you'd imagine some portrait of hagiography and sheer musical wonderment. Not quite what we get, is it? Um, you, can you see Mozart? You could see, well, we picked him out helpfully, of course. So there, there he is. There is tiny Mozart on the left there, you see, at the harpsichord. And here he is. The, the, the most important thing, I mean, the, the painting isn't even called anything about Mozart or what's happening. It's called English Tea. Thé à l'anglaise au temple dans le salon de quatre glaces chez le prince de Conti. So it, it's a picture of aristocratic splendor. Um, and you can see the effect that Mozart's music is having on the assembled masses. 
not a lot, right? <laughs> so, you know, I like the foppish guys on the right-hand side. They're just going, what on earth is going on? I'm, having, I'm trying to chat her up. What are you doing? You know, it, the whole thing is it, they're really profoundly uninterested. I mean, even the guy behind him, is, that, is he reading a newspaper? I don't think he's dictating music to him. And then the, the, the lutenist, the same, is sort of is not even looking at him. In fact, the only the personage or being in the painting that's really giving him any attention, and we've picked him out for you, is this dog. Yeah, it's tough being a musician then as now. Um, when Mozart arrived back in 1778, not much had changed in terms of the listening culture of instrumental music in Paris, as these pictures prove. Uh, here's uh, Augustin de Saint-Aubin's Le Concert. And again, the musicians are in the middle of the picture at least time. That's a step up from where they were before. Uh, but they're scarcely being attended to by, uh, by, their, by their public. Uh, the women and men are, well, they're, they're doing what aristocratic ladies and gentlemen at that time would do. Uh, here is, here's another one, which is, this one I think is even worse, where even the musicians are, you know, the, 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 around the piano, they're kind of looking over at the band in the background, but there's no sense here that the music, the instrumental music, is profoundly important. And Mozart himself had to uh, deal with the same thing in 1778. Uh, here's an account of him finally ending up at the Duchesse de Chabot's house uh, in May uh, 1778. Uh, i pick out a couple of things here, but you'll see a few lines down. Uh, what vexed me most of all is that the Duchess and all the gentlemen did not cease drawing for a single moment, but coolly continued their occupation. So I was left to play to the chairs and tables and the walls. So he's finding, there he is, this is a big moment, he's going to a place where he knows there is the most important series for instrumental music in Europe at the time, Le Concert Spirituel, which is happening at a, at a, in an auditorium next to where the opera is in the, in the Palais Royal, but you know, he's, he's frustrated by what he's experiencing. And even when he goes to Le Concert Spirituel, which is a well-supported um, series of concerts originally uh, in Lent in Paris, um, thanks to Joseph Leroux, it had become a really important uh, kind of laboratory for late 18th century composers. But even there, he finds, he finds them doing really simple things. He takes the mickey out of the composers not being good enough. He's profoundly sort of dissatisfied. Um, however, we now get to this, the, the symphony, the Paris Symphony, number 31K297. And things change here. So this is in a letter of the 3rd of July, where he tells his father, Leopold, about what happened at the premiere. This is what we're going to recreate. Now, in the middle of the first movement, that's the Allegro here, a passage occurred which I felt sure must please, and there was a burst of applause. But as I knew at the time, I wrote it, what effect it was sure to produce. It brought it in once more at the close, and then rose shouts of da capo, encore, again. So just to be very clear about what he's saying here, he's not saying applause at the end of the movement, he's talking about applause within the first movement. Something that if you were to do now, you would be looked on askance in most classical music settings. This is the reaction, not only the reaction that he's not complaining about, it's the reaction he wants from this piece. This is what we're going to do first, however. This is the third movement. Having observed that, uh, that all last as well as first allegros here at the Concert Spirituel begin together with all the other instruments and generally with the full orchestra, mine commenced with only two violins, piano, for the first eight bars, followed instantly by a loud forte. The audience, as I expected and as he wanted, called out shh at the soft beginning, and the instant the forte heard began to clap their hands. The moment the symphony was over, and I went off in my joy to the Palais Royal where I took a, took a good ice. The ice is coming, but uh, we need, first of all, to rehearse your reactions, which you're going to do on cue to brilliant listening scores, which have been prepared by James and Ollie at, the, at Gresham College. So, ladies and gentlemen, can we rehearse a round of applause like this, on cue? Yeah, a bit more enthusiasm, thank you. Thank you. Is this? Okay, next. Shh. 
And this, sh if this is shh, it's a shh of attention, not telling someone to stop eating sweets. Go, shh. But a bit more, it needs, to, it needs to be a bit more, if someone's not doing it next to you. Okay, thank you. Next is a shout of, oh. great. You've got all that. So those are your three uh, important reactions. Look, we are, as I say, we are recreating a listening culture here. This is a one-handed journey back in time, but we're restoring this music uh, to the kind of participation, the dialogue between us and it that it was written for. So we're just gonna, I'm going to play this, and you can look at what happens, and then we'll do it. So just listen and watch when... Uh, listen quietly. I'm sorry about having to say that to you. You can rehearse. Yeah, rehearse it a bit. It's fine. Good. I think you're ready for this. Let's just go for it. Okay, ready? Let's go. You know, you're, you're too sophisticated. I knew it, of course. Here we go. Okay. So, hubbub and then shh. So, we listen to the violins, yeah. Maybe a bit more. We keep that going. So, Good. You're surprised by when that comes in? Yeah, good. Keep being surprised. <laughs> Look at that, you see, it's in the wrong place there. Okay, that's, that's good. Now, uh, uh, it's pretty good, pretty good. Uh, that, however, was the rehearsal tempo. That was Carl Böhm with the Berlin Philharmonic in 1961. This is Adam Fischer with the Danish National Chamber Orchestra at a more 18th century speed, and this is what it should really do. So again, foment of excitement. In fact, can we start with some hubbub, which means talking to each other? So you're gonna be surprised, you're gonna be surprised by what's happened, you see? You get the idea? So you keep going, and we don't know what's gonna happen, and then, Yeah, good, good, good. Now we can listen. You can, you can enjoy yourself now. You can listen a bit if you like. I think that was pretty. Give yourselves a round of applause. That was pretty good. I want to, um, we just, uh, the, the next example is, just, just to show you what's actually going on in that music, what, the, the way, what this is all about is how Mozart knows what the expectations of this listening public are in the Concert Spirituel. So he knows they start with this thing called the coup d'arche, which means, basically, as he says to his father, look, all it means is they start together noisily. I mean, it really isn't rocket science, you know? And he kind of takes the mickey out of it in this piece, really. But in the, in the third movement, you, here's the start of what we just heard. And the, what he's playing with here is not only dynamic, it's rhythm as well. So if you can see in the violin line, you see that, that first note is tied across the bar line. When you hear it for the first time, you think it's dee, bum, ba, ba, dee, da, but it's actually offbeats. Da, dee, dee, ba, bee, ba. And it's only when we get to the forte that we realize we've been, we've been wrong-footed by the music. And then the next quiet passage, as I'm sure you noticed, was slightly longer than the first time. So again, just when you think you might expect, we just, you know, we're keyed up for that next forte, and again, he's putting it in the wrong place. He's playing with us all the time. James Johnson describes this music as a, as a dialogue with us, its listeners, but it's more like a kind of multidimensional dance in terms of the way he's playing on every aspect of the fabric of the music to delight us and to get us involved. So we're just going to go, I just want to do the, um, actually we're going to do this one now, which is, uh, oh, sorry. Good, good, very good, yeah, very, yeah, you're there too soon. Oh, go on, let's do this one, it's the first move, go on. Do it, just do it. This is the first movement. And, 
have a more variety of responses and hubbub maybe. What's he doing? Something like that. You can, you know. And that, oh, back in. Up to you. Oh, you maybe you can listen. I sense you're slightly, right, all right, you've got this now. You... Oh, I see. <laughs> Thank you. What, I, what I'm going to do now, the, uh, there's no score for this, so you're going to have to do this on your own. The, you remember that bit in the first spoon? He said there was a tune he wrote which he knew would have a special, which he knew was going to be well received. And when it came back, they wanted it again. So I'm going to ask you to, you're going to hear the tune, and then I'm going to put it in context. And when it comes, you're going to shout, applaud, encore at the right time. A bit of yawning is fine, madam. That's fine, doesn't matter. Here we go. Um, uh, so this is the tune. That's the one. Okay, so now when that comes, now when you hear that tune, you're going to applaud at that point, but not before, okay? Now's your chance. He knows he likes it so much, you're gonna, he's going to repeat it again. Here we go again. There they are. Encore, encore. <laughs> uh, applaud to that. Come on, is it? Right. So, so, so the point here is that if Mozart were to turn up to a, a, a performance anywhere in the world of that symphony now, he would walk out after the first movement for something stronger than an ice because he would think he'd totally failed as a composer. He would find an audience of stuffed pigs, nobody reacting, people imagining they were listening to the music but not taking part in it. This music is written for us not to, not to listen. To, listen. Listening doesn't only mean sitting there in silence. It means participating in. And I think we should be allowed into the music in the way that it was actually written uh, as opposed to the ways that we now create it and we imagine we have to sit and think about this as some magisterially this th that is pure spectacular public music for us to get stuck into exactly like a pop stadium gig nowadays or uh, or a musical in the west end that's how th that's the engagement that this, that this music is supposed to be induces inducing us and if we can't do that i think we're doing it wrong and we're listening to it wrong so another culture it's time to welcome the echea quartet onto stage now please <laughs> ladies and gentlemen Because one of the illusions of, um, uh, of this kind of listening is when you see a string quartet like this, this wonderful group of musicians here, I know you're all thinking high seriousness, total concentration, utter dedication. That indeed sums up the Echea Quartet's life in music and the brilliance of what they're about to play for us. But if they were, for example, to play a tune that you knew, it would make sense, would it not, to applaud in some way or to give them a token of your appreciation for what they were, what they were doing. Um, as they get ready, I've set that gag up, but you know what to do. The, the, the other thing to say is that whereas you think that string quartet culture is about this kind of high-minded seriousness of listening as opposed to, you think, all oh, right, the Paris Opera, everybody's there to show off about the wigs or everybody's there for a big noise. 
String quartets, you'd have thought different. Not true. A brilliant new book, Nancy November's Cultivating the String Quartet in Beethoven's Vienna, proves the point. Just as that listening culture in Paris is full of participation and full of noise, so too is the listening culture for Beethoven's quartets, for Haydn's quartets, for Cromer's quartets, Firsters, and, and all the rest. And even, and perhaps especially, for Beethoven's late quartets, pieces that we think of as the holy of holies, uh, to which we must all prostrate ourselves in, in great reverential wonder. Not at all. That's not how they were heard, and I'm going to prove it to you, or we're all going to prove it to each other now. Um, anyway, you want, you want to play something for us. Let's see if you can give us a little overture. And, and if, you, if you like it, and if you recognise it, give them... You, you, it doesn't just have to be applause. You just react in some way, OK? Take it away. That's pretty good, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? Nice. Now, this is good, isn't it? It's a good change, though. It's nice, isn't it? Beautiful, lovely written down there. Wasn't that gorgeous? Yeah, all right, fine. Good. The tendresse, tears. Yes? Well. So, uh, Mozart's Serenade, K525, otherwise known as Eine kleine Nachmusik. Music, again, written not quite like Lully, not to be listened to, but certainly to be enjoyed, usually in a social context. So I just want to give a little bit of... Um, oh, I'm, I've got to go through these because I'm afraid we didn't have time. Uh, that's listening to... The, this, is, this is the problem. This is the, somebody taking the mickey out of listening to Beethoven in the 1820s in Paris, Eugène Lamy, the première audition de la septième de Beethoven. They are, the, they are the, the, the lions in the Paris opera. This is how listening changed. You can see the, the fans there, the dilettanti, as they were called. Uh, there's une victime de la politesse. We've all been there, sneezing, chewing gum wrappers and all the rest. That's what the Théâtre Italien looked like in the 1820s. You can see the boxes are actually amazingly put towards the stage. And I wish I had time to tell you more about this. Um, I'll give you two lines on it. Uh, these are called Hans and Marguerite. They're elephants of the French, the revolutionary elephants, 1798. And they were played music to, and it was their reactions that was the, that was the revolutionary reason that the, the, for the power of music in the French Republic. Um, it was, they're responsible for the idea of a total transparency between what you would see in the theatre and, uh, and what you would experience in the spectator. So you could be denounced for even uttering the word king or you know, saying anything, singing anything about the king in French. That's because when they played martial music to Hans and Marguerite, Marguerite, they started dancing, and when they played lyrical and romantic music, they, well, I'm, I'm, this is all documented, I'm not making up, uh, wish I was, but anyway, so, um, on to Vienna in the 1820s, this is Ignaz uh, Schuppanzig, uh, you can see he, he was a, a person of famous corpulence, he was also Beethoven's favourite violinist and the leader of the first professional string quartet, the Schuppanzig Quartet, who premiered uh, all of Beethoven's late quartets. This wonderful thing on the left-hand side, you can see on the left, he starts off uh, rakishly thin. Uh, this was, this was, uh, you could buy this as a souvenir in Vienna. It shows how important popular musicians were. And what you would do is you pulled out the card, and there he was after a, 
after a good night out, you see, a few years later. Um, so uh, the reason for showing you Schupenzig was to, was to give you these accounts of the kind of listening that happened and the listening that we're going to recreate with the Achea Quartet. Um, Karl Holtz is one of the second violinists in the quartet, and he describes the premiere of the Opus 132 string quartet. Um, and he says, the hall was infinitely full, and the quartet in, in particular was very much applauded. It, it, went, it also went together very well, and Linke, who was the cellist, played better than ever. It was too crowded to hear much, but this much I did hear, that many passages were accompanied by exclamations, and upon leaving, many people spoke of the beauty of the new quartet. So, exclamations within the piece, applauded so that the movements would be repeated. That was our job in the audience. If we liked it, encore, they would play it again. And the fact that, uh, you, uh, the fact that it was too loud for him to hear much, that shows the level of hubbub and conversation between connoisseurs, as we all are, that, were, uh, that was happening during the performance of this piece. Uh, just, uh, there's a bit more. The word participation is used often when, we're th when thinking about string quartet audiences of the time. In Berlin in 1823, this is the Merzer Quartet, um, an account of, of what happened. When, in addition, there is without doubt a really lively interaction between the artists and their listeners, we can even consider the public from Merz's quartet itself as a participant in its performances. Particularly as this audience normally consists of the most educated and sensitive people, I give you yourselves, who have a rewarding and stimulating influence on the virtuosi. So participation, again. If, if, if instead of the, at the beginning of concerts in the Wigmore Hall or wherever else around the world, they didn't, they, I mean, I understand mobile phones aren't great, but if instead it was sort of, please stifle your coughs and sit there in terrible, uh, you know, anxiety silence, they said, look, participate in this performance. If you'd like something, tell your neighbor about it. That's what happened at the time. You know, we know if you'd like something, you would be telling each other about it and you'd be saying, that modulation, that ritardando, that's how, that's how they knew that the music was working. So that's what's going to happen now with you all and with the Achea Quartet. Uh, we're, we're not going to hear music by Beethoven at first, but this is a quartet by Haydn, his Opus 20, number two. And it starts with a staggering bit of invention that I want you all to be amazed by, which is that you're used, we're used to the melody being in the, in the violins, at the, uh, held by the violins in the first movements of string quartets. Well, here is the cello. And more than that, everything that you're hearing is underneath the cello. So the cello is usually the lowest note in the, t in, the, in the texture. Here it's at the top, and everyone's underneath it. And then there's a wonderful moment where the tune transfers to the violin, let, let, let's hear this, but I want you to, uh, the, the noise, the noise, yes, would be great, but just, you know, stunned, gasped amazement at what Haydn and the quartet are doing. You, you, I'm sure you can do that. Here we go. Thank you very much. <laughs> it's, it's turned on its head, you see? so wonderful? The first violin hasn't played yet, you know, just the theatre of it. And here. Yes, good. Second violin, nice new character is entered. That's a jack, yes, that deserves a quote, exactly.
Thank you. That was very, very good improvisation in there. Uh, we're going to hear the end of the first movement. Um, I'm conscious of time here as well, but let, let's do the end of the first movement, then I think we'll probably go to Beethoven. Um, because this will give you the opportunity for something which is known in the trade as a wigball hole laugh, which is a wonderful laugh of self-satisfied, the fact that you get the gags in Haydn quartets and no one else does, and aren't we clever? You are allowed to do it at the end of this piece, because at the end of this movement, where you'll hear what happens, instead of ending with a big bomb, bomb, you know, which uh, cue rounds of applause, here you, you, Haydn makes the, the music disappear appear into the distance and it's the only time in the movement I think I'm right when it's pianissimo so it's as if the the, the, the caravan is marched on you know and it just disappears in this wisp cue <laughs> or whatever you like <laughs> but let's let's hear and everything else before <laughs> breaking now. And this could be the build-up to a big finish. Can we, uh, we're going to move now to Beethoven's Opus 131 Quartet, because if there is such a thing as a magnum opus of the string quartet repertoire, it's this piece. Now, one of the things that amazed Karl Holtz, the second violin in the Schuppenzig Quartet, about this, when he saw it, seven movements, about 45 minutes or so, they play all the way through together. And Holtz uh, complained to Beethoven, he said, look, how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to repeat anything? And, and how are we supposed to tune? <laughs> because if there's no gap in that time, especially in the gut-stringed instruments of the time, tuning was a bit of an issue. Um, but it's fascinating to me that he's really concerned with our involvement, that actually by Beethoven not, allow, not ending movements, uh, we're not allowed in to, to get movements repeated. That doesn't mean, though, that our, our listening had to be completely quiet. Beethoven did not want, as Nancy November says, he did not want disembodied, uh, dis uh, dissembled listeners. He wanted us to be actively engaged. And in fact, this piece is written precisely with us again, a bit like, it's like an inverse of Mozart's Paris Symphony, because it's written with and against our expectations. We expect the string quartet to be four movements long. Here it's seven movements. We expect it to be discrete movements. Here they all run together. So he's playing with our expectations. I just want to hear, I ask the quartet to play, there's a transition between the first movement and the second movement. And it, this is a, a, an absolutely gasping moment of magic because it, tra it transforms completely in expressive character. Um, and then we'll hear a, lo a longer excerpt. Thank you.
thank you. So that's the moment you're listening out for in, uh, in the longer excerpt the quartet will now play. This is the end of the, of the first movement, which is, again, a strange piece because it's a slow fugue, and then going into that dance music we just heard. Uh, just, you can be as awed and amazed however you like to express that. There are six minutes remaining to us, so I'm going to ask the high, apologies for the lack of questions on this on this occasion. I'd like the the, the quartet to play for us a complete movement of, of, of a string quartet by Haydn, Opus 77, Number One. Uh, and just b b before they do, and I know it's going to be the last words that, that you'll hear from me. Uh, feel free to chuck yourselves into this listening, and remember that all of us, all the time, are performers and participants as listeners. We've started that story in this lecture, that will continue in the in the rest of this series. But uh, remember, we're involved in this, and if we're not involved in the musical event does not happen. If there's one thing I want you to take from today, it's that simple thing. So uh, here, uh, here is Haydn's Opera 77, number one. React, ladies and gentlemen, as you see fit. I know I will do the same, and I'll join you in the audience.
don't go, don't go. Oh, come on. All right, fair enough. That was for me, but they were wonderful. Thank you, all of you, very much indeed. You see, you feel liberated, don't you? Thank you very much, David. Thank you.